Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Elizabeth Berg at her February 26th event at Galaxy Library in Dakota County. One of the most prolific New York Times bestselling authors of the last two decades, Berg's impressive bibliography lists more than 20 novels, including Open House, in Oprah's book club selection in 2000. She has also penned two well-received works of nonfiction, and her writing has appeared in Ladies Home Journal, Red Book, and New York Times Magazine. Her newest novel, Tapestry of Fortunes, confirms her place as one of America's most beloved chroniclers of female friendship, according to the Chicago Tribune. Oh, hello, and thank you so much for coming out on a night that's not fit for man nor beast. Um, drinks all around. Um, I am really glad to be here. Um, some of my family members are here. Some of my dear friends are here. I love you so much. Um, I want to do three baby readings tonight from three different places. Um, I want to talk a little about the writing life and um, writers, tell you all the dirty stories I know about all those writers. And um, we're going to have time for Q&A, too. So please feel free to ask anything, including for my famous roast chicken recipe, which I'm always happy to share. <laughs> Has nothing to do with writing, but that's good, too. Um, since we um, are in a library. I just wanted to say a word about how much I love libraries, no matter where they are. They're all different. They all have their own personality. And it's such a comfort for me as a writer and as a reader to go to libraries and just wander around. And I love to just go in the stacks and pull out books on photography, pull out cookbooks, pull out biographies, pull out poetry books, pull out fiction, and just bring them over to a table and gobble them up. And um, I, I, I like the approach of not knowing what I'm looking for, because that way sometimes books find me. Um, I, th it, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't like libraries. And if you did, you probably wouldn't want to hang around with them. Um, and I came uh, by my love of libraries from my mom, who just 
we were, we were army brats and we moved all the time. And as my mom says, the first thing she did was go and get her library card. And she always has a, a great relationship with the librarians. She used to bribe the bookmobile librarians by giving them pralines at Christmas time so she could get moved up to the top of the request list and get the best books. I think it was a bribe, but really it was a thank you. Anyway, um, she always loved libraries. She always loved reading. Uh, I remember as a kid that her nightstand always would have a big pile of books, and she reads voraciously. She reads every kind of book, even the, even the scary ones. In fact, I think she particularly likes the scary ones. Um, so I, she also is a terrific writer, and I think could have been a writer if she hadn't elected to instead run around the country with my dad and raise kids. And she's here tonight, and I, I just wanted to, um, for you to meet her, and um, could you stand, Mom? <laughs> this is Jean Hoff. <laughs> And seated beside her is my sister, Vicki, who will hate that I singled her out, but it, it must be done. My beautiful sister, Vicki, who used to keep all the Nancy Drew books from me, thus, thus making me desperate to read them. So she helped for, with my love of reading, too. Um, so thank you. Um, because you just heard about Tapestry of Fortunes, which, by the way, is my mother's title. My mom's the one who thought of that title. Um, because you just heard about that, I, I thought um, I would read very briefly from it. Um, Tapestry of Fortune takes place in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it features a motivational speaker. And in this book, as, as well as any book I write, I really try to get inside the head of whatever character it is I'm writing. So this is a little, a little section that talks about this character as being a motivational speaker. And I didn't want her to be like Jack Handy. Is that the guy on Saturday night? Remember the you know, deep, deep thoughts, that guy? I didn't want her to be like that. I wanted her to be a little more elegant than that. So, The next afternoon, I'm at the Oshaka Women's Club in Atlanta, where I've been hired to give a talk. I'm standing at the window in the speaker's room and looking through the slanted blinds at the women gathered on the lawn, chatting amiably, laughing, leaning their heads together to share a certain confidence. They're pretty. They look like so many buttermints, dressed in pastel greens and pinks and yellows and whites. It's a warm spring day after a rainy night. I think I'll say that again. It's a warm <laughs> spring day after a rainy night. And the women who are wearing high heels are having trouble with them sinking into the earth. I sit down on the silk love seat to review my notes, but I don't have to. I've delivered this speech called You.2, creating a better version of yourself so many times in so many places that I've pretty much memorized it. But looking at my notes gives me something to do besides stare at the flowered wallpaper, the oriental rug, the gold and crystal sconce lighting, which I've already examined thoroughly. This organization likes you to be there early, and they keep you in the speaker's room until you go on. They feel it's more exciting to the audience if they see you for the first time when you come on stage smiling, waving, dressed in your power suit. A 50-something woman wearing a yellow apron over a print dress comes into the room holding a little gold-rimmed plate full of food, tea sandwiches, cut-up melon, cookies. 
I'm just here helping out in the kitchen before your talk, she says. I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to hearing you speak. I hope you will mind my telling you this, but you said something in your last book that truly helped change my life. Getting lost is the only way to find what you didn't know you were looking for. It is so true. It helped me to flat out leave a man who was just a son of a bitch, plain and simple. It took a real leap of faith to do what you said. I did have to kind of get lost to abandon certain ways of thinking, of being, really. And it was scary. But doing that gave me the courage to walk away from someone I should have left a long time ago. And six months later, I found someone else who's much better for me. I'm so happy to thank you in person for helping me do that. She looks at her watch, unties her apron. Oh my, I didn't mean to run on. She goes out of the room and I check my makeup one more time, straighten my suit jacket, and here comes Darlene Simmons, the club's president, to escort me onto the stage. When we come out from behind the curtain, the room immediately quiets. I sit in one of the two wing-back chairs on stage and Darlene goes up to the lectern and does the introduction. Then I go up and begin my talk. Forty minutes later, I end by saying, when I was a junior in high school, I was sitting in my world history class when the teacher suddenly asked this question, what is truth? There was a long silence. We all just sat there. And then finally, Janet Gilmore, the smartest girl in the class, and also unfairly the prettiest, raised her hand and she said, truth is what you believe. Mr. Sanders nodded approvingly. I was thinking, what does this have to do with history? But of course, it has everything to do with history, because history is shaped by the belief systems of those who made it. Our own individual life history is also shaped that way. In large part, when you factor out fate, what we are is because of what we believe about ourselves. Wherever we are in the world, we mostly live in the small space between our ears. I challenge you to acknowledge and affirm your innermost beliefs, bring them out into the light. When you know what the truth is for you, you can help create not only your history, but your destiny. I thank the audience, then step from behind the lectern to applaud them. I've been doing this long enough to know that many women might be inspired, but some who walked in here cynical, are walking out the same way. In some respects, I'm among them. But if there's one thing I've learned in my years as a motivational speaker, it's that most people need someone else to tell them what they already know. I include myself in this. I include myself most keenly. That, in fact, is how I start my talks. I say I am forever a physician in the act of healing myself. That to be human is to live in wonder and in need and in perpetual evolution. I say that no matter what our occupation, our real job is to help each other out. So um, that's that character. Um, and oh, thank you. Um, I, I find with um, every book that I write, every article that I write even, um, I, I teach myself something through writing. It's the way I, I um, actualize things. It's the way I come to understand the world. Um, 
I think most writers would say that, that oftentimes you don't know how you feel about something until you write it. So um, that's one of the things I like best about writing. I thought I'd, um, I'd talk a little about my own journey as a writer. Sometimes people are curious how you got your start and so on. Um, I, was, I, I always feel like writers are born and not made, that you come into the world with a certain sensibility and a certain disposition. Whether you choose to write or not is up to you, but it feels to me like if you don't have those qualities to begin with, you don't become a writer. One, one quality is that you're a terrible dining partner, just a terrible dining partner, because you pay no attention to the person you're with because you're too busy eavesdropping on everybody else around you. Um, another characteristic is that you, uh, you tend to be uh, moody or dramatic. I wouldn't know about that. You'd have to ask my mom. My mom's nickname and my dad's nickname for me was Sarah Bernhardt, so that should tell you, tell you something about uh, the kind of kid I was. Um, uh, I think that, that writers have a habit of noticing. They tend to be very observant of even the smallest details, and all of that goes into, of course, creating the material that you, that you use in writing. And um, you may not use everything in the book that you're doing at the moment, but all those things that you notice about people, you sort of save up. If you, I was walking through a bar one night when I was on book tour, and I heard um, someone say, well, that'll challenge your nerves. And I thought, oh, what a great, what a great sentence. So I swiped that one. Don't ever trust a writer. They'll, tell, they'll take everything from you and just use it indiscriminately. Um, so I, I sent my first thing in for publication when I was nine. Um, I thought I was going to be a poet, and I wrote a poem that I thought was excellent, featuring animals, of course, and sent it into American Girl magazine, where it was immediately rejected, immediately rejected, and should have been, because even for a nine-year-old, it was awful. But um, I was really upset when, um, when I was rejected. And I, I went into my bedroom and flung myself across my bed and wept, and then didn't submit anything for 25 years. <laughs> so don't, don't be like that if you want to be a writer. Don't be, don't be that oversensitive. Um, so that was my first attempt at, at being published. Um, and I went on to, um, I wrote things, uh, you know, in high school I wrote, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas, only I'd changed it, so it was about the teachers, that kind of thing. And um, I, um, I was president of the, of the Creative Writing Club, which was a position of no distinction whatsoever <laughs> since, since the um, officers of the club out, uh, were um, outnumbered the rest of the people. I think there were six in the group at all. You know, um, and you know, I wrote plays, and I I, I remember calling uh, a friend of mine. I think I was in ninth grade then. Oh, I wrote a play. You want to hear it? And she said, Sure. So I started reading this whole long play. I'm going on and on and on, and finally I said, Hello. <laughs> and she had gone off to make a sandwich. You know. So anyway, um, I didn't ever think, though, that I would be a writer. I thought to be a writer, you had to have an English accent and be a man and wear the corduroy coat with the leather patches. And, and um, it just didn't, didn't seem like that was something I would ever do. I would write, but not be published. 
Um, then I became a nurse, and I worked as a, as a registered nurse for 10 years, and I always tell people that that was my school of writing, because if you want to know about people, that's really the way you get to know about people, because there's no game playing going on when people are ill. They really reveal themselves to you. They're very vulnerable, and um, it's a privilege. It's really high privilege to take care of people when they are when they are in such need that way. And there were two things that the, the um, teachers uh, in the nursing school taught us that were pivotal for my being a writer. One was that we were taught to um, approach all people with unconditional positive regard, is what it was called, which meant that no matter who that person was you were caring for, you tried to, to just look at them without judgment, to try to understand who they were and why they might have become that way. And that goes a long way toward removing your own obstacles to really take in what another person is like. Another thing they taught us was to do what they called a cephalocaudal approach, which meant looking at a person for, literally from head to toe. And that was to look for signs and symptoms of any distress or illness. But it's also a good thing to do if you're going to be a writer, because we tend, as people, to look at each other within a very narrow focus, you know, this sort of oval area, the face and upper body, and we don't look at what the little finger is doing or what the feet are doing or, or you know, whether the, the knee is jumping up and down. There's all kinds of things going on with bodies that tell you a lot about what the person is feeling at the moment. So when you've been trained to look at people that way, you kind of never forget it. I taught a, a writing class in Italy a few times, and we deconstructed the writing process so that one day was focused only on character, the next day was focused only on place, and the third day was focused only on dialogue. And what that does is uh, give you permission to really focus in on each of those elements independently. And I told them when they were doing character to look at people that way from head to toe. And, and it's really fun to see what happens to people when they do that. They just, they just see things they never did before. So um, I was working as a nurse, and I had two uh, daughters, young daughters, and I wanted to be home with them more often, in part because I hated the rejection that came from calling babysitters that, that I had to get, you know, to go to work, and I couldn't stand it when they said no, so I made my kids call, because who could say no to a kid that says, can you babysit for me? Um, but I didn't, I didn't like leaving them, and um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a writer. And I knew absolutely nothing about it. I had no contacts. It was probably a good thing that I didn't know anything about it, because when you're an aspiring writer, you hear so much about how hard it is to break in. And it, and it is hard, but I didn't know that. I thought, well, I'll just be a writer. So I went down to the drugstore and got a whole bunch of magazines I thought I'd be able to write for you know, doing essays. At that time, magazines were taking essays a lot more than they, they do now. Um, and there was an essay contest going on at Parents Magazine, and I thought, perfect. So I wrote my prize-winning essay, or, or so I thought, and sent it in, and heard nothing, and heard nothing, and heard nothing, and said, okay, I guess I'm not going to be a writer, and went back to work. And I'd written the essay about why it was just wonderful to stop working and stay home with your children, and then, of course, I went back to 
And, and then I got an envelope in the mail I had moved that said, what, you know, we've been trying to find you. You won this essay contest. And um, I was beside myself, you know, and it was, oh, we get $500. I just, I couldn't believe it. And my, my husband then said, you know, I think when you get this money, you should, you should just spend it any way you want. Like, we shouldn't pay bills with it. You just, you know, spend it and have, knock yourself out. So I did. And when I got the check, I went out and bought all this stupid stuff that I neither wanted nor needed and spread it all out on the dining room table and, and then said, look at that. I don't want any of this stuff. I just went out and bought all this stuff. I could have bought a KitchenAid Mixmaster if I'd only thought about this. If I ever sell another article, I'm going to buy a KitchenAid Mixmaster. So the next article I sold, I bought a KitchenAid Mixmaster. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it is now 25 years old and it works perfect. You can grate cheese with it. I highly recommend it. So um, I wrote for magazines for, um, I guess, about almost 10 years, eight, 8 to 10 years, never thinking that I would write fiction, but then felt one day like I just wanted to try it. So I started writing short stories and um, began selling them to magazines, and then um, one day thought maybe I'd try a novel. The very word scared me. I just, I just couldn't imagine writing a novel. It felt like can't, trying to keep track of puppies who all look alike, you know, like trying to follow that one around and you, you had to keep so much in mind all the time. So I started writing a novel and um, I thought, yeah, I, I think I'm going to do this. So I asked a, one of the editors with whom I worked um, in magazines to recommend a, an agent and she gave me the name of two agents, and I met with them and picked the one that I liked best, and luckily she wanted to pick me as well. So um, she was going to go out with this novel when I finished it. But then I got a different idea, which I kind of tend to do, I guess, looking back at my history. And I started writing Durable Goods, which turned out to be my first novel. And that novel was written so quickly, it just came pouring out. And um, so I sent it to my agent when I had about 90 pages, I guess. And she sent it out as a partial submission. Again, something they don't do very often anymore. These days, you kind of have to have the book done. But she sent it out as a partial and then uh, sent it out on Friday. And on Monday, two publishers called wanting to buy it. And then I was so happy I stayed in my robe all day with my, <laughs> with my phone in my pocket because Oh, who knew what else would happen? Well, nothing else happened, but still, you know, it gives a girl ideas. So um, that was the first novel, and then I, I just kind of went on from there writing what turned out to be a book a year. Um, it's always uh, unnerves me a little when people say, oh, you write a book a year as though it's a mandate, and, and, it's, and it's, that's not what I set out to do, and that's not what I want to do. That's just what happened. So I had this, you know period of really, really turning them out there. Um, and then um, I, I, people often want to know about the Oprah experience, and I guess it's different for every, every author who has that experience. But um, the way it happened for me is that I was called by the, one of her producers because Oprah was at the time in court over the beef thing. Remember when she got sued over the beef thing? So she was busy talking about beef, and so the producer called me, and I thought it was a joke, as I think a lot of people do. 
And I said, this, this really better not be a joke because I'm really in a bad mood today. And she says, not a joke. And I said, well, could you fax me something on letterhead? <laughs> so, so she did. And um, she said, now, you can't tell anyone. You know, that was a deal. We had to, it, it was a big surprise. You had to keep it a secret. And I said, well, can I just tell one person? And she said, hey, OK, you can tell one person. So I told five. Five people, but you know, I had to tell my parents. You have to—I mean, that doesn't even count. You have to tell your parents. So, uh, I think I told my sister too, and a couple other people. But anyway, um, so it was a wonderful experience. I mean, she—I I had been on uh, her show before because um, when I wrote a novel called *Talk Before Sleep*, which was really to sort of sound the alarm about breast cancer, uh, she had me on the show when she did uh, an entire show devoted to breast cancer. And I'd been on another time. Here's, here's how good um, I should be my own agent, right? Because she, her people had called me for the, the very first book I did, which was about family traditions. You know, we're calling from the Oprah show. We'd like to have you on with other people uh, because we're talking about family traditions. And you did this book. And I said, oh, you don't want to have me on. That book's old. <laughs> and I said, no, we think, we think it'd be fine. I said, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really old. You probably want a newer book. And then I realized what I was doing and shut up. But um, so I'd been on um, a couple times. But the experience of having been chosen for the book club was, was, was a little different than that and really quite wonderful. And you get treated like the Queen of Sheba. And I, I, think, I think you might like to know that um, after the, the cameras had been turned off and the show was over, here comes Oprah's staff with these. We, we had a show with a bunch of women talking about divorce, because that's what Open House was about, was a woman getting over this uh, traumatic divorce. So all, all these women had come on the show who had had events like that happen in their real lives, not, not in a novel. It really happened to them. Staff comes out with all these blue Tiffany's bags. And in them were pajamas and makeup and a, a, a bookmark from Tiffany. So she just gave everyone. She's so amazingly generous, as you know. So it was a really, really nice experience. Um, and um, I find that now that I'm getting old and forgetful, it's not as easy to write anymore. Like that word is hovering up here sometimes. Um, and the other thing I did was to really switch gears in terms of what I write. I tend to write um, I, I always say that, you know, place has no place in my books. Like, I don't care where it is. I, I just make up towns. Mostly I'm focused on women wearing curlers in kitchens. You know, like, I really, I really like women's friendships and, um, and relationships in general. But I, um, I was reading the Writer's Almanac one day. Are you familiar with that, the Writer's Almanac? It's something that you can get every day in your email if you want to. It's free. It's from Garrison Keillor, actually. And um, it has a poem every day that's a really great poem. And then it has various factoids that have, in one way or another, to do with literature. Maybe it's the birthday of someone. Maybe it's a commemoration of some other sort of thing. Maybe it's some reference to a book. It's always interesting, and it's really I really love getting it one day. They said, today is the birthday of George Sand. 
And what I knew about George Sand was next to nothing. I knew that she was a French novelist from the 19th century and, and was supposedly notorious and wore men's clothes and smoked cigars. That's all I knew. And that's all that a lot of people know about her. But the information that they supplied that day on the Writer's Almanac was so beguiling to me, so interesting. I thought, wow, this woman was really something. So I called my friend Nancy Horan, who wrote the book Loving Frank. Some of you may have read that. Uh, it's a terrific book. And I called Nancy and I said, Nancy, you have to write about George Sand. She's so interesting. And Nancy said, I'm not writing another book of historical fiction. I just finished about the one about Robert Louis Stevenson, and I need a rest. You write it. And I said, I can't write historical fiction. And she said, oh, yes, you can. It'll be great. So I said, well, OK, I'm going to write it. It's really hard. I got to tell you, it is really hard. You have to read about French history. And I read biographies of Chopin and Flaubert. And, um, it was really a lot of work, but it was also so enriching and so interesting. And in the way that uh, I wanted to get inside the head of a motivational speaker or a woman in curlers, I wanted to get inside the head of George Sand as I came to see her, as I learned more and more about her. So um, it, was, it was challenging, but really wonderful. And um, I'm going to, this is the first reading I've done from that book. I'm going to share you just a, about a page and a half. This is the very beginning of that novel, which will not be available <laughs> for a year. You can say, I heard it a long time ago. It's an old book. Um, so this is the prologue. The book is going to be called The Bird Lover. And this is the prologue. The date is April 17, 1873. Country estate at Noant, France. In the dining room, the men are eating roses. The small bouquet I placed at table center will soon be naked stems. A wreath of cigar smoke hangs in the air above my guests' heads, moving ever upward toward the Venetian glass chandelier, where the pink and turquoise colors will give in further to the dimming of their clarity. The men, Gustave Flaubert, Ivan Turgenev, Alexandra Dumas-Fille, my darling son, Maurice, are pushed back in their velvet chairs, sated, and the conversation has gone languorous. But not for long. Soon we will be dancing, singing, playing at charades, and making a great deal of noise, though Gustave will no doubt sulk and complain that we have too soon turned our attention away from literature, his raison d'etre. But the rest of us, Ivan especially, greatly enjoy the kind of rocking, raucousness that takes us back to the easy pleasures of childhood. I have always loved doing my work and the reverie it requ requires, but too much contemplation turns to melancholy, and gaiety must then come to the rescue. Before we begin our evening's amusements, our puppet shows and readings and bagatelles, I have sought the out of doors and a temporary reprieve from my role as hostess. I stand now in a mantilla of shade, beneath a tree here so long its mere presence dwarfs the idle happenings or musings of those who seek out its shelter. The light is amber, the day still, the day lilies have folded in on themselves, 
Soon the hooded blue of dusk will fall, followed by the darkness of night and the sky writing of the stars, indecipherable to us mortals, despite our attempts to force narrative upon them. I sense the beginning of my end. At random moments, I find myself in sudden need of an intense privacy. Then I excuse myself from my own table, from the trilling conversation in the bookshop, from the darkened theater or the street market with its bins of fish and shard. I stand somewhere alone to calm myself, to draw breaths past the knot in my chest. I lose focus of my surroundings in order to accommodate a more compelling vision in which I undress my life, searching for the vital place, the beating heart of what I most truly was and am. I am in agreement with Goethe, who said that every day one ought to hear a little song, read a good poem, see a fine picture, and, if it were possible, to speak a few reasonable words. I would add to this the need to love. Without it, the rest is dust. So, thank you for listening to that test audience. Um, it's a really long book, too. It's different from my other books in, in that way. It's 470 pages currently. I thought I'd read the rest, okay? <laughs> Did you bring your pajamas? Maybe you should have anyway, considering what it's like out there. Um, I have one more reading I want to do, but I wondered if you want to break it up a little bit first and, and um, have a few questions, and then I'll finish with that last reading. Well, we have once again reached the part of the podcast where we stop and give you, our club book members, a chance to get your questions answered. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage, to ask the questions that keep you up at night, long past the point you laid your book down. It's a time to bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write. Our first question asker is an aspiring writer looking for advice and wisdom of the trade from Berg. Um, for those of you who, who might not have heard, she's talking about um, that she, she wants to write and she's wondering about how it is that I get started. And the answer is that it's different things for different books. The thing that's always true is that I don't know where I'm going. Also true of George Sand, one of the reasons I like her. George Sand liked dogs, too. Also, she was a great practical joker, but never mind. Um, uh, okay, I'm just going to tell you this one thing. George Sand used to have these illustrious dinners with, with poets, with musicians. She had an eight-year love affair with Chopin. She would have philosophers and people in the, in, who were very active in politics and all these illustrious figures. And one night she was having a dinner like that, and I know this isn't answering your question, but I'm coming back. One night she was having a, a, a dinner, and she had her, her poet lover at the time dress up as a woman and pretend to be the server and dump a pitcher of water on a very famous philosopher's head. <laughs> Said, that's my kind of woman. Anyway, that sounds like a good time to me. So, so it's always different. Sometimes... Um, I, in the case of this book about George Sand, the first sentence in the dining room, the men are eating roses, came to me, as well as the last sentence, which of course I'm not going to tell you. But, but oddly, I, and I don't know why, um, 
that's what happened. And I thought, okay, I've got the first sentence and the last sentence. Now I just need to write the whole book. Um, but, but those sentences were such anchors. And really, it, it sounds crazy to say it, but really informed the way I was going to write this book. Um, I, I will sometimes know the first sentence or know the last sentence and then know what I'm working toward. But I don't know what's going to happen or how I'm going to get there. When I wrote a novel called um, Range of Motion, all I knew is that I wanted to write from the point of view of someone in a coma. How am I going to do that? How am I going to get there? Uh, for me, the freer I am, the less I think about what I'm doing, the better the writing. It's as though the part of you that writes is less brain than spirit. And you have to just take such a free fall into trust and just let it happen. Now, that's my process, as they say. But every writer is different. And Anne Patchett, for example, who's a writer I very much admire, knows the whole book before she starts. And a lot, um, another writer I really like, Elizabeth Strout, has pieces of things. And she writes pieces of things. And she sees how they can all fit together like putting this puzzle together. So I, I think that what falls to you as someone who wants to write is to find out what works for you. And don't ever listen to somebody else's advice about how you need to do it, because the way you need to do it is the way you need to do it. So you can experiment with different things. You can try plotting. You can try just doing a stream of consciousness. You, uh, one of the things I did uh, once for a short story was um, this was for stories on stage like they do in New York, or they, they do it in Chicago too. And they got three writers and they gave us all the same first sentence. It wasn't until she got outside in the sunlight that she realized her socks didn't match. So take that first sentence and do something with it. You can do something like that. What was interesting to me with that is how very different those three stories were, all with the same first sentence. So um, there are prompts that you can use. Um, go to the library and get, I did a book uh, of writing called Escaping into the Open about writing. And there's a, a bazillion prompts in there that may lead you to discover something. I feel like, like uh, too, that the best writing comes from a deep place inside that really, this stuff needs to come out. You just need to get it out, whether it's to be published or whether it's just for you, it needs to come out. And, and once you let it know it can, it will. Our next question is about where Elizabeth Berg's characters come from and how do they develop? Um, you know, I always compare characters to those old Polaroid photographs that you would, uh, you know, at first it comes out and you see nothing and then the image slowly comes up. That's how it is for me with characters. Sometimes I, I draw from people I know certain characteristics, um, but the characters will never be someone I know because they change in the writing. They change to accommodate the narrative arc. They, you can't, or at least I can't, just take someone I know and insert them in a story. It has to support that unseen indescribable thing that's going on that's making you want to tell this story in the first place. So um, I really like watching people. I think people are just so interesting. And even the ones that you, quote, hate, you know, they're interesting. And, and uh, as a reader, sometimes when I read about characters that I really hate, I say, oh, boy, here comes that one I really hate, you know, <laughs> because, it, because it's interesting. 
So um, I, I let them shape themselves is really the most succinct answer to that question. Yes? Do I do much revision? Depends on the book. Um, with durable goods, the, I didn't change one word, not one word, nothing. Um, and I had several other novels that were like that. So I started thinking, oh, I get it. This is how it is. You write a book, you turn it in, it gets published. This is great. And then came the day when my editor said, you know, I think, I think uh, uh, we should think about you know, such and such. And I thought, what? Uh, so, um, uh, some books I, d I did, um, it's, it's pretty minor. Now, with this George Sand book, girl, I did a lot of revising with this book because my intention at first was, I'm very interested in people's childhoods. I wanted to write about her childhood. I thought, oh, everybody knows she had a, an affair with Chopin. Well, everybody doesn't know that. So when my editor got the first, um, I, when I sent it to my agent, she said, I love this. And I thought, back in the saddle. And then my editor got it and said, I love this too, but I want way more. And, and um, I said, but everybody knows about Chopin. And she said, no, they don't. I want to know everything about her love affair with Chopin. So um, it went on and on and on. I did so much work for this book that if people don't like it, I'm going to hang myself in my closet. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so it's different. I, I think um, most writers uh, feel such emotion for their books, and, and it really, you have to be a very good editor to not uh, hurt the feelings of the author you're editing or, or make them mad at you. In fact, my editor said, okay, I'm going to send you some notes and you're going to be really mad at me. And I said, no, I'm not, but you know what? <laughs> and so um, the things that she was asking, it was too many cooks in the kitchen. And at one point, I realized, I know what you're asking for. I cannot do it this way. It's not going to work. And I called her in one of my dramatic huffs, which I'm so very good at, and said, I cannot do this. I cannot do this book. I'm going to do something else, so forget it. I'm not going to do it. And she said, this is so great, I love my editor so much, she said, you know all those notes I sent you? Give them to your cat. <laughs> Let your cat play with them. Do whatever you want. She trusted me enough to think that I'd figure out a way. And it was really hard, but I figured out a way. So, yeah. Well, if you follow Elizabeth on Facebook, you may have wondered about this yourself. Every so often, Berg will post a rather humorous back-and-forth conversation with her dog, Gabby. An audience member asks what this is all about. Yeah, Gabby's quite fond of that herself. She comes over when I'm typing and says, is it about me? Is it? <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I, I love doing that. She's talking about on Facebook sometimes I do. <laughs> if you must know, I do, I do conversations between me and my dog. Because I think that's what she's thinking. And who is she to deny it? She can't talk. So, <laughs> thank you. Having read more than a few of Berg's novels, another audience member wanted to know what happens to Berg's characters afterwards, and how does she decide if there's more to their story? 
You know, it, for me, it's, it's, it's like when you put the car in park. I mean, I, I don't decide in advance when it's going to end. They're just, they're, it, I get to a place where I think that's it. That's the end. And um, sometimes people, I, I never know whether they're, you know, whether to take it as an insult or a compliment. They, I wanted more, you know. I think, well, good. I, you always want to leave them wanting more, don't you? You know, that, that's better than I thought you would never shut up. You know, that would be terrible. Um, but but it, it, one of the things that I think is really magical and important about reading is that the, the reader creates the material, and so does the writer. So that if I suggest a character to you, if I tell you this girl had red hair and freckles, you get an image. And that's your creation. So um, when readers come to a book, they, they invest themselves and um, sometimes want it to go a certain way or want more or, or whatever it is. And, and I think that's natural, and I do that as a reader too. But as the writer, when you're driving the car, so to speak, you have to honor when, when it's over for you. Our last question comes from an audience member wondering about Elizabeth Berg's relationship to the Midwest. Um, but, but her question was about the Midwest, and you know how we are called the flyover zone. I really want to punch people when they say that. I really do. Because it's very, you know, I've lived all over the place. And I've lived on the East Coast. I've lived in California. I've lived in Texas. I've lived in Minnesota. And there is something so grounded and rich and appealing about the Midwest. And um, <clears throat> frankly, I find um, the, I, I went to an event in New York once, and I had the audacity to wear color. And um, one of the servers said, God, what a relief. I am so sick of all this black. So, you know, I, I, New York's great and all that stuff. But, there, but there's, I don't know, maybe because my parents are from here, maybe because uh, I was born here, um, I have um, an affinity for it. And I think that it's so underestimated. And... Uh, People have these preconceptions, and, and when they come here, I, I live in Chicago now, and people come to Chicago and say, wow, this is really a great city, and I think they do the same thing here, and, and the way that Minneapolis and St. Paul are so different from each other, each charming in its own way. Yeah, there's, there's work to be done, but I agree. I think it's happening that people are starting to recognize that. Um, I am going to read you one more thing. This is about the value of books and reading. And I just thought it would be nice to end with. So pretend that you're a little kid being read to. It may be true that music hath charms to soothe the savage soul. I think it is true, actually. But books soothe our souls, too. They're like comfort food without the calories or the dishes to clean up afterward. Books inspire us because they suggest things we might never have thought about before. And they give us ideas for things we might never have conceived of otherwise. And they make us want to try things, or be things, or make things, from creme brulee to sensible foreign policy. Books educate us about art and politics and ideas. This happens in both nonfiction and novels, and in poetry, of course. So many of us have been moved to a deeper understanding of things, or many things, by taking in a few dark lines on a cream-colored page. Books exercise our creativity. 
because they are a uniquely interactive art form. You're going to remember this now. The author may write, she was a freckle-faced redhead, but it's the reader who sees those freckles forming a tiny constellation at the angle of the jaw. It's the reader whose imagination provides extra details for a kiss or a punch or a description of open land or a dimly lit bedroom where a character kneels to pray. There are no advertisements in books. You create your own breaks without someone trying to brainwash you into buying yet another thing you don't want or need. Commercial-free entertainment. Books actually do what NPR only purports to. What about the tactile joys of reading? What about the pleasure of looking at jacket art, not only when you're considering buying a book, but as you read it? Even as many of us look numerous times at author photos as we read, probably trying to determine if the author is in fact talking about her or himself, or if this is really fiction, or wondering who this person is who has the nerve to say this, or the poetic ability, or the insight, or the intelligence, or the creativity. Book pages feel good beneath the fingers, and you can at any moment take a deep and satisfying whiff of a book. Try that with a museum painting, or a ballet, or an opera, or God forbid, a hockey game. <laughs> Plus, a book is cheaper than all those things, and it can be passed around to others to enjoy as fully as you did. Of course, it is always a nice gesture to buy a friend his or her very own copy of a book you enjoyed. Come on, a paperback isn't much more than a latte frappa crappa mocahannas. <laughs> a lot of people say they don't have time to read, not even for an hour a day. Whenever I hear that, I always think of my friend Bill who says, give up Wheel of Fortune in favor of reading and you can go through 25 books of year, a year and that's with taking the weekends off. <laughs> and here's something else. Books don't so much take time as give it to us because they reacquaint us with the notion of real time. One blue mountain, one second. One blue mountain, two blue mountain. Two seconds, remember? In this age of multitasking, of speed for speed's sake, of pop-ups and links exhorting us to go somewhere else when we're not even done with where we are, it is a relief, if not salvation, for us to focus on one dang thing at a time. Instead of being lost for hours in the time-sucking quicksand of the internet, one sits in dignified tick-tock, one blue mountain silence, and reads a page, turns it, reads the next page, and so on. Such an elegant act, reading, isn't it? And such an elegant image, a person sitting in a chair, a book resting on a lap, lamplight spilling on the page. Can't you just feel your blood pressure lowering, contemplating such a thing? Really, a picture of a person reading should hang in every doctor's office, especially those colonoscopy guys. <laughs> I honestly believe that our sense of urgency, our belief that we must become one with our iPhones, our need for moving ever faster in the workplace and on the highway and in line in the grocery store, even in conversation with each other, is causing an erosion of the most basic form of civility. Are we really all that busy, or do we just make ourselves so because it has become the new norm? Sometimes I wish someone had talked to the inventor of FedEx and said, hold on, Bob, you may be starting a dangerous trend here. 
For this is what we have wrought. Many of us have no idea how to keep still. We have forgotten that in stillness is a great richness, as well as opportunity for reflection and repair. Stillness offers a way to learn perspective, and therefore kindness, for in such purposeful quiet, we are often reminded of our connection with others and of the need for that connection. We need to relearn the art of conversation. We need to take a moment to really look into each other's eyes when we shake hands. We need to see and appreciate and be empathic with each other. All of this takes time that we cannot afford not to have. So what's with the link with books, you might be thinking? I think there is a link, because I believe that no matter what the genre, books help us move in the direction we need to go, because they require a kind of contemplation. And contemplation will suggest that we need to save ourselves from drowning in a sea of dullness, of virtual rather than actual reality, of communication that fails to really communicate, all of which leads to a deadness of spirit, which leads to a lack of respect for life, which leads to violence and destruction. In so many wonderful ways, books make the dominoes fall the other way. I believe, too, that each of us, no matter how gregarious or open-hearted or secure we might be, nonetheless holds deep inside ourselves a private place, a personal sacristy, where almost nothing is allowed to enter. But I think certain books we come across in our lifetimes do enter there. They enter and they pull up a chair and slip off their shoes and say, I'm right here if you need me. In this way, they offer respite from a kind of existential loneliness all of us humans seem burdened by. I think that's why so many people say with such utter sincerity that some books are their best friends, friends who live on special bookshelves and are never thrown or even lent out, lest they be needed immediately. I don't know, call me crazy, but it seems to me that Kim Kardashian just can't compare. Thank you very much. Well, that's it from our Galaxy Library event with Elizabeth Berg. Catch our next club book with P.S. Duffy at Marion Park Library in St. Paul on Tuesday, March 11th, 2014, 7 p.m. Meet P.S. Duffy, get your questions answered, and your book signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Clubbook Facebook page. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and the Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to Dakota County Library for hosting Elizabeth Berg and to all the other libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>